Turn in your Bibles, please, to uh, John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Father, my prayer is simple, but it's meaningful. It's easy to say, but the effects will be profound if you would be so gracious as to hear and answer it. Lord, I pray this morning that you would reveal yourself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and as the Son of God who created and also rules over the world. Lord Jesus, we're eager not just to talk about you, but to encounter you. So I pray now that by your word and by your Holy Spirit, you would reveal yourself to us. And I trust you for what you will do, and by faith, I thank you for what you will do. In your great and gracious name, we pray. Amen. When God speaks, his speech endures. His speech does not fade away. His speech does not fall to the ground. His speech does not grow stale, and it does not grow impotent. The speech of God endures forever because the God of truth lives forever. By his grace, God had spoken to Israel in a number of ways 
through a variety of people over centuries of time. And as the centuries passed, his speech continued to speak to his people. However, since his people refused to listen to him, since they refused to repent of their sins, since they refused century upon century to learn what it means to love the Lord their God with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength, the Lord came to a place where he decided to stop issuing fresh speech to his people. Like pigs returning to their slop, so the people of God returned to their false gods and to their evil ways, and so in the course of time, the Lord said, enough is enough. To be sure, through all the time of God's silence, his speech was still speaking. The things he said through Moses and through the prophets and through the poets of Israel continued to speak, but beloved, Why would the Lord add words to his words when his people refused to listen to his words? Why would the Lord continue to cast his pearls before swine who thought themselves wiser than him? There is a time to speak and there is a time to remain silent. And for God, the time had come to remain at least relatively silent. In 1 Samuel 3.1, We read of a time when there was a famine of the word of God, and some of you may remember when we talked about that. This type of famine, I want to suggest to you, is the most serious of famines. Imagine what your life would be like if the authority figures in your life refused to speak to you. Imagine if your parents refused to speak to you. Imagine if your boss refused to speak to you. Imagine if the authority figures in the church refused to speak to you, if your own spouse and your own children refused to speak to you. And then imagine what it would be like for the people of Israel to live with a God who refused to speak to them because of the hardness of their hearts, because of the wickedness of their own ways. Human beings do not live by bread alone. This is something we perhaps know in our minds, but I wonder if we've ever really stopped to let it sink in. We do not live by bread alone. We do not live simply by the air we breathe and the food we eat and the the water that we drink. We literally live, even this moment, we are now living by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so I suggest to you that when God decides to be at least relatively silent, It is the most serious type of crisis that human beings can face. It is a crisis of truly epic proportions. As serious as was the situation in Samuel's day, it was but a prelude to a greater famine of the word of God that was to come. After the deaths of Nehemiah and Ezra and the several prophets that served by their side, the Lord refused to issue fresh speech to his people for 400 years. Think back to the year 1617. Not many of us were alive at that time, right? But maybe you've learned a thing or two about it. Think through the 1600s, the 1700s, the 1800s, the 1900s, and down to our own day and wonder what would it be like if God refused to speak to us for that entire time. While there was always a remnant of people among God's people who sought him, who loved him, who wanted to hear from him. And while God always remained faithful to his people, and while God's speech continued to speak, no matter what the situation was in his uh, chosen people, 
God sent no prophet in those days. God offered no specific guidance in those days. For more than 40 decades, God remained relatively silent. In the midst of that time and for a season, it seemed like the Lord was again moving among his people because by his grace, they were able to overthrow the Greek empire in their local area and the Jews were able to rule themselves for the first time in a very long time. However, in 63 BC, the Roman Empire rose up and conquered the Greeks and they forcibly subjected the Israelites to their own power and might. As we might expect, this occurrence of events grieved the people of Israel and it caused them to begin to cry out to the Lord for deliverance and it caused an explosion of expectation among the people of Israel to look for a Messiah, to look for an anointed one who would come and deliver them from the powers of the world, who would deliver them from the rule of others so that they could again rule themselves, to deliver them from slavery so that they would have the freedom to worship God. I'm telling you, the archeological record shows an explosion of expectation from about 63 BC until the time Christ was born. They were looking for, praying for, longing for a deliverer in God's time. And by his overwhelming grace, the Lord answered the prayers of his people and sent a prophet into their midst who prophesied with such passion and with such power that virtually everyone in his lifetime knew that he was a man of God and they knew that he was indeed a great prophet of God. His father, Zechariah, was a priest in Israel and his mother was a lover of God. Together his parents walked in the ways of the Lord and they did what was right in the sight of the Lord and in the fullness of time God granted them a child. They had been barren most of their life but they prayed and called upon the Lord and the Lord graciously gave him this son whom they named John at the command of God. You may remember that the name John means to whom Yahweh is gracious. And I want to suggest to you that God was not just gracious to John and to his family, but to the entire people of Israel. Beloved, with the birth of John came the end of God's silence toward his people. And it was an overwhelming display of God's grace toward them. We don't know much about how John grew up, but we do know that in time he went to the desert areas east of Jerusalem and there he settled and he learned what it means to minister in the power and in the spirit of the Lord. Indeed, John was a great prophet, beloved, but he was not a great man. Rather, he was a man upon whom the hand of God decided to rest. The effectiveness of John's ministry, the longevity of John's ministry. We're sitting here 2,000 years later still talking about this man. The effectiveness and longevity of his ministry was not due to his charisma, but to the Spirit of the Lord God that was upon him. As John rose in prominence, the spiritual leaders of Israel began to wonder who he was. And they began to wonder why he had come. And they began to wonder what his ministry meant for Israel and even for their neighbors. They knew that he was not a normal man. Nobody could deny that fact. But they weren't sure exactly who he was. And since it was their responsibility to shepherd the people of Israel, since it was the, their responsibility to keep political peace in Israel so that Rome would not come and attack them or force themselves even stronger upon them, they eventually formed a delegation of priests and Levites and they sent these men to John to inquire about his identity and about his ministry. And this brings us to John chapter one, 
verse 19. Before we delve into the details of the conversation, I do want to tell you that I'm going to have you turn to a lot of places in Scripture today, and if you're visiting with us especially, I want to apologize to you for that. We don't normally do this sort of play Bible tag team, but sometimes it's important for us to go and look and see. So if you're unfamiliar with your Bible, again, I just apologize for throwing this upon you, but I just encourage you to maybe ask people around you to help you figure out where these places are. But if it's possible for you, if you have a Bible in your hand, I'd really like to ask you to turn with me to a number of places today so that we can see with our eyes the deep roots of the conversation we're about to meditate upon now. You'll see in verse 19 that the delegation of priests and Levites began by asking John simply, who are you? I think John clearly understood that they wanted to know if he was the Christ or not. They wanted to know if he was the Messiah. They wanted to know if he was the promised deliverer, and so you'll see there that he emphatically denied it and said, I am not the Christ. Look at how the Apostle John puts it. He's so emphatic. He confessed, he did not deny, and he confessed, I am not the Christ. I am not the one that God has sent to deliver Israel from her enemies round about. Many people in John's day were making this very claim about themselves. Many charismatic leaders were rising up and saying that they were the Christ. They did not have a a full spiritual vision of the Christ as we do. They had more of a political deliverer type of vision. But I just want us to understand, many in that day were claiming of themselves that they were the Christ. John, however, was very clear that this was not the role to which God has called him. Beloved, knowing who you are not is an important part of faithfulness and fruitfulness in life. And John certainly knew who he was not. He began by saying, I am not the Christ. Emphatically, passionately, happily, he said, I am not the Christ. This was good for the delegation to know, but it was not enough for them. So they continued to press and look at what they asked him next in verse 21. Well, then what, John? Are you Elijah? Now, the reason they asked this question was because of the prophecy that was issued through the prophet Malachi in the mid-400s B.C. So if you will, please, turn with me to the book of Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. Turn with me to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to look there, and then we're going to look at a couple of verses in chapter 4 so that we can see the roots of the question that's being asked here. The Lord God said through Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Please notice that there's a distinction here between a messenger that's going to be sent and the Lord. When the Lord says, prepare the way before me, he is somehow mysteriously talking about himself. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now please flip over to Malachi chapter four and look at verses five through six. The prophecy now gets much more specific. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Beloved, These were among the last words that God spoke to his people before that 400 years of famine ensued. And this prophecy caused many people in Israel to think that 
the prophet Elijah was going to physically and visibly return among the people of Israel. Do you remember from 2 Kings chapter 2, 11, do you remember how Elijah went to be with the Lord? Do you remember that he did not die a natural death, but that somehow by the grace of God, he was swooped up by a chariot of fire as it were, and he was escorted into the presence of God? Since Elijah did not die like the rest of us, many in John's day taught that Elijah was going to physically and visibly come back to the earth. He was essentially going to incarnate. And now this guy John comes along. These people knew the Old Testament. They knew 2 Kings 1.8. They knew that Elijah's dress was odd. He went around, it says, in a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. He didn't look like everybody else. He looked different and he acted different. He was a, a man of power before God and before his people. And now John came and he looked different and acted different too. He too wore a coat of camel's hair and he too wore a leather belt around his waist. He had a strange diet and he spoke powerful things and so it was not hard for them to say, well, if you're not the Christ, you have to be Elijah. You look like him, you sound like him. Surely you are the fulfillment of the prophecy. However, you'll notice in verse 21 that John simply said to them, I am not, I'm not. Now, for our part, Maybe his denial is helpful because at least it helps us understand who he's not, but it does raise some questions. Because the angel of the Lord who prophesied the birth of John to his father before John was born said that John was going to proceed in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then Jesus himself said that John was the Elijah to come. So how are we to understand this? John denies it, the Lord claimed it, so how are we to understand? Please turn with me to Matthew 17. I want us to see exactly what Jesus had to say and then we'll grapple with how to understand John's answer. Matthew 17, I have in mind verses 10 through 13. Matthew 17, 10 through 13. Here's what Jesus had to say. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes, the lawyers, the teachers of Israel, why do they say that Elijah first must come? Jesus answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he, Jesus, was speaking to them about John the Baptist. So again, John says, I'm not Elijah. But the angel of the Lord who announced his birth said he is gonna come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And Jesus himself, the authority of all authorities, says John is the Elijah to come. So how are we to understand this? Some scholars think that John simply didn't have a full self-awareness of who he was. They suggest, and I'm talking about people like Don Carson, major people, Bible-believing people, they suggest that while John had a partial knowledge of himself through the meditation of scripture and his own walk with God, he did not completely understand all the biblical connections between his ministry and Jesus' ministry. And, and that's certainly possible. It's certainly not a heretical thing to believe. I tend to think, though, that John was making a more specific denial without denying that he had any connection to Elijah. Remember, the people in his day literally thought Elijah was gonna incarnate on the earth. And so when they asked, are you Elijah, they're not saying, are you the metaphor of Elijah? They were asking literally, are you him? And John said no. But I think he was not interested in engaging in further conversation because I think John didn't trust their motives. 
And so he just said, no, I'm not the one you're thinking of. But this doesn't mean that he saw no biblical connections between himself and the prophecy of Christ. But whatever the case may be, I think we can take Jesus' words as what they are. John is the Elijah to come. He's just not Elijah in the flesh. So with this denial now, the delegation had to keep pressing. So they asked the next most logical question to them. They said, are you the prophet then? Now notice that they did not say, are you a prophet? Rather, they said, are you the prophet? In our day, that doesn't make a lot of sense to us, especially if you haven't uh, much awareness of the Bible. You'd be wondering what the heck they're talking about. But for any good Bible-believing Jew in that day, he would know exactly what they were asking. They were asking, are you the prophet that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 18? Are you the fulfillment of this one for whom we have been waiting for so many centuries of time? Turn with me, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 18. It's the fifth book in the Bible written by Moses. Deuteronomy 18 is the speech of God directly to Moses. So we'll look at Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 18, and see the roots of where this question is coming from. Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. So I have to apologize. This is Moses now speaking in the spirit of the Lord, but to the people. So with that, let me begin again. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So what he's talking about here, beloved, is that day on Mount Sinai when God appeared in the cloud and he appeared with thunder and lightning and he spoke audibly to the people and it put the fear of God so deeply into the people that they said, please let the Lord not speak to us anymore. And the Lord granted that request and gave them Moses as a mouthpiece but then through Moses... The Lord said there's one much, much greater than Moses coming. But at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, it was probably Joshua who wrote about his death. And at the end of the book, in chapter 34, verse 10, it says that no prophet like Moses had arisen again, one who talked with God face to face, one who did the kinds of signs that Moses did. The prophet that Moses spoke of in chapter 18 had not yet come. So these two passages functioned in the life of Israel for 14 centuries to cause them to think that another prophet was gonna raise up. And as I said, between the time that the Romans conquered Israel in 63 BC and the day John was born, there was an explosion of speculation about when this prophet might come and who he might be. And so this is why they're asking, if you're not Christ and you're not Elijah, are you then the prophet? John's getting shorter and shorter in his answers, have you noticed? He just says, no, no. And it's written in Greek. There's another little tiny mark you can put in Greek if you want to say, no. And he says, no. But he just says, no. He doesn't have much to say about it. So now the, de the delegation is completely perplexed. And you know why? It's because they knew that this was not a normal man. They knew that this was no charismatic man or some just uh, extra specially gifted priest or something like that. 
They knew that John was a true man sent from God. And so they had to find out who he was. Look what they say in verse 22 there. I just feel their exasperation. Who are you then? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Finally, John answers in the affirmative in verse 23. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. This self-description comes right out of Isaiah 40, verse three. So if you'll please turn there with me, I wanna look at the context of Isaiah 40. Isaiah chapter 40, verse three, but we're gonna read verses one through eight together. The Lord says this through Isaiah. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry, pay attention to that word, cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double from all her sins. Now I wanna pause here and note that the word for cry in the Greek New Testament and in the, the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament is exactly the same. So the Apostle John is trying to make us connect John the Baptist with this one who is to cry in Isaiah chapter 40. So please, he's gonna mention this, this word again several times. Please note it, this is about John. A voice does what? A voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And what I hear him saying in the context of John 1 is that the great word of God will take on flesh. The great word of God will be revealed. The one who created all things will make himself visible and nobody will be able to corrupt or reverse the speech of the Lord because he has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field, the grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands, will stand forever. Beloved, John the Baptist was called by God to cry, 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 Christ. He was sent to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. He was sent to call the people to repentance so that they would have eyes to see the glory of the Lord. You see this way that he's making in the desert is not a literal road, it's the hearts of the people. His job was to wake them up so that they would see the glory of Christ. He was sent to declare what the Lord had decreed. And while Isaiah 40 verse eight is a famous verse that does apply to all the words of God, I want you to understand that in this particular context, it is applying to the word of God about the place of Jesus in the history of the world. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God about Christ will never fade away. It will stand, stand, stand forever. Nobody will be able to reverse it. Nobody will be able to corrupt it. So bringing our attention back to John now, while we can't know their hearts, I think that the delegation was 
either somewhat satisfied with John's answer or they were stupefied by his answer. But one way or the other, they didn't ask him any follow-up questions. However, there were some Pharisees among them. And that's how I take verse 24 there, by the way. In most of your Bibles, it says that the Pharisees sent this delegation. But most scholars take that to mean that there, there were some Pharisees among the delegation. And those Pharisees had a particular concern about baptism. And so in verse 25, they asked him, well, then John, if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, why are you baptizing? Now you have to understand, beloved, in their day, if a non-Jewish person decided to believe in Yahweh, if they decided to convert to Judaism, to put it in our language, the Jews would allow them to self-baptize under the authority of the spiritual leaders of the church as a rite of purification. So understand, in that day, the Pharisees, the Levites, the priests, they did not baptize converts to Judaism. They would stand over, preside over the ceremony, but the people would self-baptize as, a, as a, a symbol of their purification before God. John came, however, doing two things that really raised a lot of questions. First of all, he was baptizing Jews, not Gentiles. This was not done in that day. Can you imagine if somebody came and began to baptize Christians by the hundreds and thousands? became very popular, very powerful in the land, wouldn't we stop to ask, why are you doing this? They had, a, a, I think, a legitimate concern. And the other thing that was happening is John himself was doing the baptism, so behind their question is really another question. Where did you get the authority to do that? Who gave you the authority to baptize people and to baptize Jews in particular? John answers in verses 26 through 27. He's a little bit evasive, so I think he doesn't completely trust these people. But here's what he says. I baptize with water. And that's really all he says. Now he turns his attention beyond himself. But among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John understood the nature and the implications of their question about baptism. He knew that he was doing something unusual and controversial and that it was likely to raise concern, maybe even legitimate concern, among the religious establishment. But notice that John doesn't really completely answer their question. He simply says that he baptizes and then he begins to cry, 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 Christ. The way I'm hearing this is, from Isaiah 40, verse eight, the word of our God will stand forever. John says, listen, there's one standing in your midst. And he uses the form of that verb that means to take one stand and remain standing. One has taken his stand in your midst. And to me, the clear implication is that no one will be able to do anything to reverse that. The one about whom John was sent was actually in their midst. The one who was greater than John, so much greater that John wasn't even willing to untie his shoes, was standing in their midst. The one who had come to shepherd the very shepherds of Israel was there, and yet they did not know him. Doesn't that bring back to mind the earlier part of John chapter one? He came to his own people, and his own people did not know him. The apostle tells us that this conversation took place at Bethany across the Jordan, and I just want to in, for a second point out to you that this is a different Bethany than the one where Lazarus lived and where Lazarus was healed by the Lord. Christian scholars and 
just pastors and teachers of the Bible have not agreed about where this Bethany is from the third century down to our day. And for my part, I don't really care where it is. I think the more important thing to understand here is that John was giving an historical clue to his first readers that the story he was telling is true. For them, they all would have known exactly where this particular Bethany was, and they could have gone there and investigated the case for themselves. We're going to see that like Luke, John drops many historical clues to help us understand that he is not telling a fable, he is telling a true story. John the Baptist came as a great prophet of God, but with all his heart he said, here's my purpose in life, it's to point to Jesus Christ. It's to cry, 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 Christ. This is the point of his coming. I doubt that the delegation was fully satisfied with what John had said, but whatever the case They went back to Jerusalem and surely they reported what they had found. On the next day, you'll see in verse 29, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he continued to raise his voice and to cry aloud about him. We're gonna see in a moment that John had already baptized Jesus and so this was not their first public encounter but here now in a second probably public encounter, John began to say something about him that no one had ever said before him. And actually, in the book of John and the book of Revelation, this is the only place where Jesus is described like this at all. John the Baptist looked at him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We'll probably never know exactly what John had in mind when he used these words, I mean John the Baptist, but I will venture a guess here with you. It's possible that in the back of John the Baptist's mind was the story of Genesis 22 where Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac but God stopped him telling him that the Lord would provide another sacrifice. It's possible that that's the antecedent in John's mind. It's possible that John had in mind the Passover where there were sacrifices made for sin. It's possible that John might have had the, just this word lamb in his mind which is used in the Old Testament 82 times to talk about sacrifices. But the problem with all those antecedents is that none of them talk about specifically a lamb as a sacrifice for sin. So it's possible that there's some connection between these texts and what John said, but I tend to think that more so he has Isaiah 52 and 53 in his mind. Remember, John's sense of self-awareness came from the great scroll of Isaiah, right? John read Isaiah 40 way before this story happened. And he knew by the Spirit of God, this is me. I am this one. And if John was so clear about his own identity, he certainly knew that the Christ was the one that was talked about after that in chapter 40. So he keeps reading, he keeps meditating. He comes to chapter 52, verse 12 through, or 13 through 53, verse 12, and he thinks to himself, wow, that's the one about whom I came to cry. So if you will, please turn with me to Isaiah 52. This is a long passage, and I debated last night whether I should do this or not, but I just can't help myself. I just want to read all this with you. And I want you to think about this phrase, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Imagine Isaiah 52 and 53 and think about how this phrase might have come to John's mind. Behold, a word which means look, pay attention, listen carefully to what I am about to say. My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that 
of the children of mankind. On the cross he was beat to a pulp. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they shall see. And that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, Jesus was very most likely not a physically attractive man. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried away our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him as stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. Now listen carefully. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he opens not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Small parentheses, that prophecy was fulfilled to the T in Jesus' life. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I feel sure in my own mind at least, that this is what John had in mind. He saw Jesus and knew that he was this one. And imagine being John. Imagine having such depth of insight, of knowledge, of intimacy with God about what he was about to do after four centuries of silence. God was about to explode upon the world and create the central moment of the world. And John saw it coming And then he saw it with his own eyes. Oh, those words for him, beloved, were so incredibly filled with meaning. Now, I do want to make something clear. When he says that Jesus is going to take away the sin of the world, he does not mean that the self-sacrifice of Christ means 
the automatic forgiveness of everybody who has ever lived. He does not mean that Jesus will provide universal salvation. We've already learned in chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, that only those who receive Christ and who believe in his name will have eternal life. Everyone else will remain in their sins. Everyone else will perish. And we've already seen from verse 13 that those who do receive and believe in Jesus Christ do so because God has acted upon them. God has caused them to be born so that they would believe. They did not make a decision in their flesh to believe. As Jesus later said himself, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life and nobody comes to the Father but by me. When John says that he takes away the sin of the world, I think what he's saying is that Jesus is not only the savior of the Jews, he's the savior of all nations. He did not come to be a parochial God. He did not come to just be a, 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 a territorial God. He is the one who created all things, and he is the one to whom all people will account. It is no wonder then that John said what he said next, for the third time, by the way. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks above me, who is greatly above me. Why? Because he was before me. He existed before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he may be revealed to Israel. And then John makes mention of the day of Jesus' baptism in verses 32 through 34. I saw the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, descend from heaven like a dove and it remained upon him. Unlike the prophets of old and the judges of old and the kings of old on whom the Spirit came and went, on this one the Spirit landed and it stayed I, did not my, no, I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I've come baptizing in water. He comes baptizing with God. See how great he is. Behold his glory. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now when John tells us that the Lord showed him how to identify Jesus, he showed him how to identify the Christ, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, how do you suppose that God shared that with John? Well, I suppose that it was in a time of seeking the Lord. I suppose that it was somewhat by the Spirit of the Lord, but my answer is more specifically this, and I quote, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from a root shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. That's Isaiah 11, 1 through 2. And then again, quote, Behold, my servants, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my Spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. That's Isaiah 42. And one more, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty, to proclaim freedom to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. While the Lord may have revealed some details to John by his Holy Spirit, I think mainly that the Lord spoke to John about Jesus while John was meditating on God's word. 
He didn't just get some voice out of the sky. He got a voice out of the word of God that had been speaking for centuries upon centuries and crying about Christ. And then when John saw that dove land upon Jesus, whatever that looked like, John Calvin is very convinced that it wasn't a a literal dove and many others follow in his train. I don't know, and frankly, it doesn't matter much to me. Whatever it looked like, it looked like. The sign is what's the important thing. Somehow, the Spirit of God showed his pleasure with the Son of God and landed upon him and reigned upon him. And when John saw that, he knew that he was looking at the Christ. A couple of days later, Jesus comes walking along and John says, in the hearing of only God knows who, look, there's the one right there. There is the Lamb of God of Isaiah 52 and 53. 800 years of prophecy are fulfilled in that one right there. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Son of God who created and who rules over the whole entire world. Beloved, John was sent by God to bear this specific witness to the light. You remember from the first, earlier in the first chapter, he was sent to witness to the light and now we have heard more specifically what his witness was. Some 20 centuries ago, God sent this great man to witness about Jesus in this particular way. And by God's grace, John is witnessing to us right now in the very same way. You remember last week we saw that the words for witness with regard to John are in the present tense. John's witness continues to witness, and he's here to speak to us today. One of the reasons why I was not afraid to endeavor with you to go so deeply into the Old Testament in so many different places is because I trust that the speech of God speaks and speaks and speaks, and it's speaking to us now. And what is it speaking? It is saying that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, the singular Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. It is saying that he is the only Savior of the world, who came to take away the sin of all who believe in him. And so while we've looked at some of the details of chapter one, verses 19 through 34, I pray with all my heart that we will not miss the point. I pray with all my heart that we will not be blind to the glory that is here, that we will not be hard to the Lamb of God who came to take away our sins through simple faith in him. If we refuse to believe, the Bible says that God's condemnation remains upon us because we have rejected the only means of forgiveness that there is in the world. However, if we will simply humble ourselves and believe, the Bible tells us that he will give us the right to become children of God. He will transform us from darkness to light, from death to life, from wrath to grace, and from slavery to freedom. Now, we who have walked with Jesus for any measure of time, we know that this doesn't mean that life on earth will be easy. Can I get an amen about that? Sometimes life, even in Christ, is painful. Sometimes life, even in Christ, is perplexing. But beloved, life in Christ is a settled life. The greatest issues of life for us are completely settled in Christ, even if he leaves here, leaves us here for a while to suffer and to be formed into his image through the things that we experience To be in Christ does mean that we have the power to overcome the designs of Satan. To be in Christ does mean that we are no longer slaves of our flesh. We are no longer slaves of our past. We are no longer slaves of this world and its designs. We are no longer slaves of Satan. In Jesus, we have the power to overcome. Behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away your sin if you will only believe, beloved, in Jesus Christ. We are free. We are 
free. And so what else is there to say but let us believe? Let me pray now that God will help us. Father, your word is so powerful and it is so clear and yet we live in a world absolutely filled with distractions. I have no doubt that people listening to me in this room right now have been distracted by many things. I myself, Father, found my my mind wandering even as I was preaching the sermon. Lord, we live in a world filled with distractions, but I pray that by the power of your spirit that you would arrest our attention. I pray that you would fix our eyes upon the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. I pray that you would fix our hearts on the Son of God who created the world and who rules over it. I pray that you would help us to see how great he is so that we would bow our lives before him. And I thank you, our Father, for what you will do because this word that you have spoken about Jesus Christ will stand and it will endure forever and ever. It will produce the effects that you sent it for. So by faith we give you our thanks. And we pray that you would speak to us now, Lord, as we rise to sing your praise. I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would instruct us and I thank you for what you will do in this time.